Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 294, The Redoubtable General William Slim. Last time, the far western end of the melee barrier, Burma, if looked at in a general sense, had been invaded and its capital, Rangoon, occupied on March 8, 1942. The barrier, set up to protect British and Dutch possessions in Southeast Asia from the Japanese, had all been but decimated and in record time. The only lands still free of the invading empire were British-controlled India, Australia, and the southern half of Papua New Guinea, and of course, central and northern Burma. But those areas were currently facing the Japanese 15th Army, which had been strengthened by the arrival of the 18th and 56th Divisions. Meanwhile, the inadequately equipped and trained defenders, waiting to be attacked, were demoralized after losing southern Burma so quickly. But however the defenders were going to try to keep central and northern Burma in Allied hands, they were going to have to do it without radar, which would have allowed them to focus their relatively meager air arm. That had been left in Rangoon. And the holding on to what remained of unoccupied Burma was now up to General William Bill Slim, who had been ordered to fly in from Lake Habadaya in central Iraq in early March of 42, as the Burma command was crumbling. Slim, an introspective man who had commanded everything from a platoon to an army, saw the leadership of men in combat as a science and an art. Indeed, to his thinking, the unit's success, no matter its size, was determined by the person on top. That person got the glory, which, if wise, they would share, or the blame, which, if wise, they would keep all for themselves. Why? There will always be another battle. The unit must continue to believe in itself. Now, the science of command is as about as sexy as logistics, but it is equally important. As Slim said, the most important thing about a commander is his effect on morale, which can take on a thousand different forms, making sure the troops have what they need, logistics, to making sure that they know the faster an objective is completed, the sooner they can get out of there, motivation and goal. And this labyrinth that is command had been studied by Slim for decades. Born in 1891 in Bristol in southwest England, as William had an older brother, the family did not have the means to send this second son to university. So young William from 1910 to 1914 taught in a primary school and worked as a clerk for a metal tube maker. In 1912, he joined the Birmingham University's Officer Training Corps, though he had no official connection to the school. When the Great War came, he was made a second lieutenant in the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Wounded at Gallipoli, he was sent home. After recovering, and still with the Royal Warwickshire, he was wounded a second time in Mesopotamia. Moved to India to recover, he was given the temporary rank of major in the 6th Gurkha Rifles in 1918. A year later, formally made a captain, he was transferred to the Indian Army. As his ranks alternated during the war, 
he saw the effect those commanding had on their men. Some leaders cared for their troops. Others simply expected the men to do their utmost all the time, without sufficient motivation or example. The latter normally did not fare well, nor their units. During the interwar period, William got married, attended staff college, and then was sent to Army HQ India in Delhi. After this, he was sent home to teach at the staff college Kimberley from 1934 to 1937. He also wrote novels and short stories under a pen name to augment his meager army salary. What followed was more classes at the Imperial Defense College and commands in India. When Nazi Germany invaded Poland and the two sides geared up for a much wider war, Colonel Slim was put in charge of the 10th Indian Infantry Brigade of the 5th Indian Infantry Division and sent to Sudan. There he participated in the East African Campaign, which hoped to push the Italians out of Ethiopia. Going back a bit, in May of 1936, Mussolini announced the formation of Italian East Africa, made up of the Italian colonies of Italian Eritrea and Somaliland, along with Ethiopia, which had been conquered during the Second Italo-Abyssinian War. This creation of Mussolini's threatened British and French colonies in East Africa when Italy declared war on those two countries in June of 1940. Also threatened was Egypt and nearby Aden on the Arabian Peninsula. Though much of this has been previously covered, in November of 1940, Colonel Slim led a force that captured the Sudanese town of Galabat on the country's southeast border. Just across from Ethiopia, the idea was to act as an anvil to the hammer of British and African forces pushing up from the north. This larger strategy worked, but the campaign could have been shortened as Slim could have easily crossed over and taken the nearby Ethiopian town, where some of the Italian units would take refuge before the end. Yet it must be said that Slim's true style of aggressive warfare that would one day lead to guerrilla tactics used against the Japanese in Burma had not yet been fully formed. Still, Slim had just learned a lesson, one that would remain with him for the rest of his fighting career, and he was honest enough to make no excuses in the sedan. He wrote, When two courses of action were open to me, I had not chosen, as a good commander should, the boulder. I had taken counsel of my fears. And he would have the time to ponder this mistake, as in January of 1941, he was wounded by a strafing enemy plane in Eritrea. As he recovered, Slim was put on the general staff at GHQ in Delhi. London was expecting trouble in Iraq and wanted him there to be in the game. And in May of 1941, Major General Fraser, the commander of the Indian 10th Infantry Division, fell ill, so was replaced by Slim. It would be with the 10th Indian that Slim would see a rapid-fire series of actions in several territories in the Middle East. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, 
you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. During the Great War, the British led the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, and after the war, the League of Nations designated Mesopotamia, which covers much of modern-day Iraq, as a British mandate. Hence, the RAF Iraq Command was established which would be changed to Iraq Force or Iraq Command during World War II. The mandate in Iraq ended in 1930, and by the late 1930s, the British only retained two Royal Air Force stations in country, RAF Shabah near Basra in the south, and RAF Habaniya just west of Baghdad. But the pro-access Iraqi Prime Minister Rashid Ali al-Gailani made plans to kill the regent of five-year-old King Faisal II in March of 1941, who fled the country. So, on April 1st, the coup d'etat was set into motion. Gailani was again the prime minister with his new national defense government. Right away, Gailani sent an Iraqi artillery force to the RAF base at Habaniya. The threat was clear enough. However, as Iraq's oil, of which British-owned Anglo-Persian oil company had a concession, was vital to the Allied war effort, and the country acted as a part of the land bridge between Egypt and India, Churchill ordered Wavell to protect the airfield and other British interests. Coming into Iraq from India were Indian troops, but not Slim's, he was still recovering, known as Sabine Force, under the still-healthy Major General William Fraser. Still in April, a brigade from India made quick work of subduing Basra, Iraq's main port city, to which Prime Minister Rashad Ali demanded that all British troops be removed. London responded by having the aircraft at RAF Habaniya bomb numerous Iraqi forces. War proper had come to Iraq. During the British fighter and bomber raids against Iraqi forces who were closing in on the airfield, HAP Force from British-controlled Palestine was put together to help save their comrades. Yet even before HAP Force could contribute, the garrison force alone was able to push back the threat. Now the reinforced British-led troops pushed on through Fallujah and on their way to Baghdad. That was the end of the pro-Axis government. On May 31st, an armistice was signed. A pro-British government was put back into place. 
Just like Iraq, after the Great War, the League of Nations issued the Syria and Lebanon mandate that divided up the territories between Great Britain and France. The British were given responsibility of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and the southern part of Ottoman Syria, or Palestine, and Transjordan, while the French received the remainder of Ottoman Syria, Lebanon, Alexandretta, and parts of southeast Turkey. Again, the idea was for the European powers to act as a trustee until an independent state was born. However, like the British, when the French ceded autonomy to Syria in September of 1936, it insisted on the right to maintain armed forces and two airfields in the country. Going back to the Iraqi coup d'etat in April of 1941, though this was handled quickly enough, it still sent shockwaves through London. What if the Vichy French-controlled Syrian Republic, or the French Lebanon, allowed Germany to send in forces that could then be used to attack Egypt from the north. Indeed, this scare was all the more specific, as Germany had, by May of 1941, invaded nearby Greece and Crete. So, it was decided to launch Operation Exporter, the preemptive invasion of Syria and Lebanon in June of 1941. Guessing that the British would attack General Henri Dentz, the High Commissioner for the Levant and the Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the Levant, per the War Minister, was already letting German and Italian planes land in Syria for refueling. And as even this would probably elicit a response from the Allies, Dentz was as ready as he could be with seven infantry battalions of regular French troops, eleven infantry battalions of special troops of indigenous Syrian and Lebanese soldiers, 5,000 cavalry, horsed and motorized, two army groups, some 90 tanks, and 289 aircraft. In the water, this force was supported by two destroyers, a sloop, and three submarines. If confirmation of British fears was needed, RAF reconnaissance flights over central Syria spotted German and Italian planes landing. The next month or so would see air combat that roughly broke the Brits' way, which caused the Germans in the area to ask Hitler for permission to expand operations there. In truth, Hitler wasn't that interested, yet he wanted to see the British bogged down here, so allowed a slight increase in air power and offered Dents even more. But in mid-June, Dents would turn this offer down, as he did not want to see his area become a major war zone. For the coming Allied invasion of Syria and Lebanon, the British were, overall, in a solid starting position. To the south of Syria, in Palestine, was General Sir Henry Maitland Jumbo Wilson, who was no one's fool, and he had the 7th Australian Division, except the 18th Brigade, it was holding out at Tobruk, Gent Force with two Free French Brigades and the 5th Indian Infantry Brigade of the 4th Indian Infantry Division. In northern and central Syria sat Iraq Command of Lieutenant General Sir Edwin Quinnan, who had parts of the 10th Indian Infantry Division, Hab Force, the 4th Cavalry Brigade, and the Arab Legion. 
As their locations were generally to the east of the French possessions, these forces would move west to help secure the coast. The skies over the coming battlefields would be contested by RAF squadrons and planes from the RAAF, or Royal Australian Air Force. Held in reserve would be the 17th Australian Brigade. All told, Jumbo Wilson had at hand some 34,000 men, two Dense's 35,000 soldiers. His sticking point, though, would be the 50 fighters he had versus the almost 300 of the French. The British attack plan was straightforward, but effective. Coming in from four different directions and not all at the same time, the Allied campaign would be a series of waves that would hit French installations and forces in such a way that once Dents figured it out, he would have already lost routes in between the settlements and then be overwhelmed in more vital areas as unexpected previously separated Allied units would come together as they came closer to the last remaining targets. Jumbo Wilson, to get Dents' attention, would have the 5th Indian Brigade Group cross north into Syria on June 8th from British-controlled Palestine and make for Cunetra, below Beirut, and Dara, south of Damascus. As Dents reacted to this, the Indians would stop, but now that the way to Damascus was open, the still-fresh 1st Free French Division would follow up on the opening on the way to Damascus. The Indian group would then fall back to a support unit. Meanwhile, the 7th Australian Division, under Major General Arthur Tubby Allen, would also depart Palestine, but he and his would head up the coast, leaving Haifa and making for Beirut. Again, the 5th Indian Brigade Group would have sussed out any initial defenses in the area. But even here, the developing attack would not be what it seemed for the 7th Australian Division, once in country, would separate into brigades. The Australian 21st would also make for Beirut, while the 25th would go after the large French airbase at Rayak. Now, these actions alone would have grabbed Dens's complete attention, but Jumbo wasn't done. With these incursions well on their way, only then would Major General William Bill Slim come in, with the bulk of the 10th Indian Infantry Division from Iraq, specifically from Haditha along the Euphrates in Iraq. Slim's division would head northwest, following the Great River to Deir Ezzor, and then to Raqqa, and then Aleppo. If this could be successfully carried out, then the rail line from Aleppo to Turkey would be cut, as many British officers believed that Turkey was pro-Axis and wanted to make sure that they could not contribute to Vichy's war effort. But it's worth stopping here to zoom in on General Slim and his men, as what he is about to achieve here in Syria will be repeated in Burma, only much later, after the initial Japanese threat had lost steam. By June 20th, Damascus inland had been taken. Yet Beirut, along the coast, home of the main Vichy forces, was still holding out. It was being threatened from the south, but could still receive supplies from the north. General Wilson wanted this northern side occupied and cut off 
But in order to do that, Aleppo, further north, had to be taken. So the Allied attack on the north side of Beirut would not have to worry about its rear. This is where General Slim and the 10th Indian comes in. Jumbo Wilson wanted Slim and company to cross over the Iraqi-Syrian border on Syria's eastern side and, traveling northwest, take Abu Kamal, then Deir ez-Zor, then Raqqa, then Meskin, and finally Aleppo in the northwest corner of Syria. As the Indian troops and the southern attack had already proven themselves in this hot, dry theater, it was hoped Slim's men would do equally well. The question was, was General Slim up to it? The 10th Indian Infantry Division, currently the 21st and 25th Indian Infantry Brigades, plus the two 8th Gurkha Rifles, left Haiditha on June 27th. Coming upon Abu Kamal, it fell without opposition, as it was too close to the border, so indefensible. But after this, the 10th Indian's progress was slowed by bad roads and regular Vichy air attacks. Still, by the afternoon of July 1st, Slim's force was only nine miles from Deir Ezzor, the largest city in eastern Syria. At first, Slim was simply going to launch an attack at the city from the southeast, along the road he was on, while sending another mobile force around to the north of the target to launch a surprise attack from the rear. The hope was this would end quickly enough to capture the two large bridges there over the Euphrates. But as the Vichy air attacks had held him off of getting resupplied, Slim's fuel was running low. Should he risk it, a mobile flanking movement, which may see that force run out of fuel just as they were about to attack, to then be left stuck out in the open to follow up air attacks. Or... He could save the fuel and just make a dash in front of the city along the road, which may work, but certainly his casualties would be much higher, whether this succeeded or not. Thinking it over and valuing his men over fuel, Slim's plans were revised with a mobile diversion component. Now, commanders like Ulysses S. Grant of the U.S. Civil War and during World War II General Patton have been called butchers for throwing their men in with, seemingly, little regard. However, their arguments for doing so are valid. To launch a direct attack to take away the enemy's ability to shuffle forces around has its value. Further, any attack that stalls and then becomes a siege will generate much larger casualties than simply charging in most times. However, General Slim was more of the mind of General William Tecumseh Sherman, again of the U.S. Civil War, who was remembered for burning the city of Atlanta. However, to get that far south, Sherman first engaged in a series of brilliant maneuvers that caused General Joseph E. Johnston's Army of the Tennessee to run itself exhausted, trying to stay in between Sherman and the city not unlike a master tennis player forcing an opponent to run all over the court. So, at 9 a.m. on July 3rd, Slim had the two 10th Gurkha rifles attack the city from the southwest, not along the road. This was a fairly obvious move, 
However, four hours earlier, Slim had sent out his flanking column again to the southwest, but this time they were 20 miles or 32 kilometers further away. By 10.30 a.m., they were in position to the northwest of the city. The Gurkhas went in first to grab the defenders' attention, which worked. Only then did the flanking force and motor cars charge in, practically unmolested. The bridges were secured, and by 11 a.m., the two Indian forces met within the city as the defenders switched into civilian clothes to blend in with the evacuating locals. Further, some 50 trucks, nine guns, and five aircraft were captured by Slim's men. The only stain on the whole affair was that the Vichy air raids went on unimpeded. Moving on, two days later, on July 5th, Raqqa, about 90 miles or 144 kilometers northwest of Deir ez-Zor, fell without opposition. As for the harassing air raids, Slim ordered that all supply trucks should travel at night. During these actions, other Indian brigades were capturing targets in the northeast corner of Syria, along the Turkish border. Added to this, General Slim, before reaching Aleppo on July 10th, paired off some of his men to secure the north-central border of Syria. By then, specifically in the early morning hours of July 9th, the Aussies of the 7th Australian Division had encircled and begun to enter Darmore, the Vichy French administrative capital, about 30 kilometers or 18 miles south of Beirut. However, the day before, July 8th, General Dents was already talking to the British about an armistice. On July 10th, the Australian 21st Brigade, its rear covered by General Slim, who was holding Aleppo, was on the edge of Beirut. This unfolding situation, as well as the surrounded Darmor, forced Dents to negotiate in earnest. The armistice went into effect one minute past midnight on July 12th. It was officially signed on July 14th at the Sydney Smith Barracks, just outside of Beirut. Now, not caring about politics, Archibald Wavell, C&C Middle East, had not wanted this campaign. The British were already overstretched in the Mediterranean, and who knew where the Germans or Italians would strike next? But Churchill wanted it, so the attack went forward. Further, Wavell knew that the men were not trained for hot, mountainous lands. Still, the Indians did well, certainly under Slim's command, as he took care of his men. But the Australians also handled themselves well, as their strength was husbanded wisely. No, the real weakness that manifested itself during the conflict was the air war. The Allies were slow in catching up to the enemy, and much of this came about, only as the French lost more and more airfields. In all, things worked out, but could have easily not done so. The Germans could have seriously committed themselves, but after the disastrous results of their airborne attack on Crete, they backed off, as to not give the British any excuse to try to retake the island. At the time, the Germans were simply not in a position to defend it. In the end, who was right, Churchill or Wavell? 
Yes, this was a victory that caused 4,653 Allied casualties, dead, wounded, captured, or missing. But Wavell's main point was that the forces that participated in this Syria-Lebanon campaign, or Operation Exporter, came from Western Desert Force, as Operation Battleaxe, the supposed rescuing of Tobruk, was underway in mid-June. The result there was an outright Allied defeat, which lost almost 1,000 men, some 90 tanks and 36 aircraft, with Eastern Cyrenaica still in Axis hands, threatening Egypt. Again, that had been the C&C Middle East Wavell's primary focus, but he was outvoted by Churchill. Ironically, the defeat of Battleaxe, though one hand had been tied behind his back, was the last straw for the Prime Minister, who sacked Wavell. He was relieved on June 22nd and gave up command on July 5th. His replacement was C&C India, Claude Auchinleck. Basically, the two men switched positions. As for Syria and Lebanon, now that they were safely in Allied hands, free French General Georges Catreau was placed in charge of both territories. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The next action Slim's 10th Indian Infantry Division would see would be in Iran or Persia. As for Slim, only his voice would be with his men, as he would direct them via radio from Iraq. Actually, the invasion of Persia would be carried out by British and Soviet forces in late August of 1941. On December 15, 1925, Reza Shah Pahlavi became the Shah of Iran. Ten years later, he would ask the outside world to refer to the country as Iran, its historical name, used by the natives. But as far back as the Great War, Britain and Russia had been meddling in Iran's oil reserves near Baku and the Caspian Sea. The Iranian government attempted to put a stop to this with Ottoman and German help during the Great War, but nothing came of it. Indeed, the British-owned Anglo-Iranian oil company, still refined the local resource. And Reza Shah, when in power, used his part of the proceeds to modernize the cities of Iran and its armed forces. Over the next decade and a half, Iran and Germany continued trading goods, as that European country had no history of cheating Iran out of its oil revenues. But it was in 1931 that Reza Shah canceled the Darcy Concession, which gave the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company the exclusive right to sell Iranian oil. It seems that Iran was receiving only about 10 to 16 percent of the profits. Yet when World War II came, the picture drastically changed. Iran went from being only a resource area to a vital portal, one that had to be kept in friendly hands. 
For one, the heavy German influence in Iran might turn into a military springboard. And two, the 8 million tons of oil that came from Iran in 1940 alone might be denied to the British, just as the war was getting underway. Then, as we have seen, came the Iraqi coup d'etat in April of 1941, which was handled well enough, and what followed was the preemptive invasion of Syria and Lebanon that same year. And as the Commonwealth forces were built up in the Middle East due to the fighting in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, it was deemed wise by London and Moscow to secure Iran's loyalty. After all, the Lend-Lease Act had been passed in Washington earlier that year, and after the Germans started their attack on Russia, Allied supplies had to reach that beleaguered country to keep it in the fight. The two northern ports of Russia, Archangel and Murmansk, were only viable for a short time during the year, and the waters near there were lousy with German U-boats. No, the more southern Iranian corridor had to remain open. So, in early summer of 1941, British pressure was applied on the Shah to remove all German citizens and to guarantee the Trans-Iranian Railway would remain open. Reza Shah shot back with anger as he hoped to keep Iran neutral during this war. Yet neither side got what they wanted. The British pressure led to anti-British rallies in Tehran, which London called pro-German, while no guarantees were given. After some weeks, Reza Shah seemed to bow to London as Iran began to trade less with Germany, which did not satisfy Churchill or Stalin. The stakes were too high, and quite frankly, with Allied troops already on the Iranian border, it was too easy. On July 19th and August 17th, diplomatic notes were sent to the Iranian government to expel all German nationals. These went ignored, and on August 25th, British forces came into Iran from the south and west, while Soviet troops came in from the north. Operation Countenance had begun. Both invaders started with bombing raids on installations and air bases, followed by ground troops. There had been no formal declaration of war. In all, this war would last from August 25th to the 31st, as the Iranians were alone, outmatched in quality and quantity, and had been sucker-punched on multiple fronts. As for the 10th Indian Infantry Division's exploits in Iran, According to General Slim, it was a opera bouffe, that is, an exercise that contained elements of comedy and farce. Starting at the Iraqi border town of Kanakin, 160 kilometers or 100 miles northeast of Baghdad, and about 300 miles or 482 kilometers west by southwest of Tehran, the Indian 10th found itself covering mountainous terrain while the British invaders in the south had a much easier time of it. Still, the 10th did well and covered ground quickly. The oil field at Naft-e-Shah was taken with little trouble, 
But when the 10th Indian went on to another town nearby, they were met by 2,000 Iranian soldiers. But by then, the RAF had made an appearance, which took the fight out of the defenders. The 10th Indian was able to go on, taking town after town, losing very few of their men and having to kill equally few enemy troops, which pleased Slim. As the incursions went on from different directions, the Iranians, not unexpectedly, lost the will to fight. By August 28th, the Allies, doing a better job this time than in Syria, controlled the skies. Then Reza Shah found out that some of his generals were actively working with the British. He was incensed, but the damage was done. Reza Shah had the military stand down. Next, the British and Soviets wanted the German minister and his staff kicked out of the country. And for the German, Italian, Hungarian, and Romanian legations to be closed. That was the price for the Allies to withdraw their troops. But Reza Shah stalled until many of the German nationals could safely evacuate. In response to this, the Soviets moved closer to Tehran to begin an occupation. The Shah abdicated, but the Soviets came in anyway on September 17th. Now on the throne was Reza Shah's son, Crown Prince Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The Persian Corridor was saved, which would send over 5 million tons of material to Soviet Russia alone. In January of 1942, the new Shah signed a tripartite treaty alliance with Britain and Soviet Russia to help in the war, but not in a military way. In September of 43, Iran declared war on Germany, which meant it would now qualify for membership into the United Nations, FDR's last great effort. Alas, Iran would find that the promises of Great Britain and the Soviet Union were more in spirit and a matter of convenience than fact. Between stealing the harvests and dominating local politics and the economy, the Iranian people would have plenty of reasons to distrust the victorious West and Soviet Union after the war. But getting back to the second week of March of 1942, between General Bill Slim's experience and his character, his natural tendency was to go on the attack. It's always better to have the enemy reacting to your moves versus the other way around. But that was not possible at this moment. The Allied defensive line was set up, but little metal was in the men's hearts. As it was, the incoming Slim would have to command the newly created Burkhor, a new name for a hopefully new attitude among the ranks, and if possible, different results. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, for the Americans out there, happy 4th of July. Hopefully this is going out tonight. In between the hot dogs, hamburgers, fireworks, cigars, and beer. Um, I know this was a heck of a detour, but because I wanted to introduce Bill Slim and the type of person he was, the type of commander he was, and because he had participated in a lot in the Middle East, 
And I know that I covered East Africa and I covered Iraq, but I wanted to make sure I covered everything else. I use this opportunity to tell that story, how the Middle East pretty much gets locked down for the Allies so I can keep focusing on the Pacific and Europe and North Africa and things like that. So I saw the opportunity and I took it. Uh, next time we'll bring in Vinegar Joe, get him face to face with Chiang Kai-shek and he will quote unquote be in charge of some Chinese armies. We'll get him into Burma and we will continue on with the ground war in Burma. Take care, everyone. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.